And Melissa's up. You're muted, Melissa. Thank you. Sure. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Recovery Jam. My name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I live in New York. And um, yeah, so tonight we're going to, um, we're kind of starting the book all over again. Um, and we're going to start it in um, the doctor's opinion. And um, so if you have your book with you, you're going to want to crack it open. I'm going to really kind of go in paragraph, really almost paragraph by paragraph because, um, and we probably won't finish tonight, maybe, but, um, you know, it'll probably take us a couple of nights, but I want to preface this by saying that um, oftentimes when I work with a sponsee, um, it really is the first formal work that we do together. You know, I might, I generally give um, people who are looking for a sponsor, I give them some sort of preliminary work to do like kind of this pre-step sort of gauging their willingness and gauging if they really are ready to do some serious work. And, um, and even just to see if our schedules can align up, you know, so, but once we kind of get that work out of the way, you know, that those few assignments out of the way and they look like there's, they they want to do this thing. We sit down together and we crack open um, the book and we start in the doctor's opinion and, um, you know, so right in the beginning, it says that um, the reader will be interested in the metal estimate of the plan of recovery described in this book. So this book is going to give you a plan of recovery. Like that's the purpose that we're going to open it up together so that we get a plan, so that we know what we're going to be doing so that we can recover. And that... Um, and that it says here, convincing testimony must surely come from medical men who have had experience with the sufferings of our members and have witnessed our return to health. So those of you who have been, you know, um, who like heard me share enough, um, I often share my photos, right? And the reason I share my photos is because it's a witness it's so that you can witness my return to health, right? Because you, you might not have known me beforehand. So when I speak, you're, you don't maybe get the sense. And the reason I normally show my photos is um, because this program is a promise of a miracle. And for someone like me, I've had a really, I've had a dramatic physical transformation. So when I share my photos, it's a demonstration of my return to health. It's the, it's the visual of what it looks like to have an experience with the miraculous. And that's what draws people in. They want to know that there really is a miracle, that there's the possibility of a miracle. And so um, the convincing testimony has to be some sort of a, a demonstration that you've been returned to health. And we can also get that from the way that people speak. You can get a sense that somebody is well by, by their voices, which is why, you know, I, I know for myself, there was a phone meeting that I, you know, had started listening to and I never saw the people on it, but I could hear that these were people who had been returned to health. I could hear something. 
very much alive and healthy in their words. Okay, so then, then there's the letter that the, doctors, that the doctor writes, right? Dr. Silkworth. And his letter starts off with, to whom it may concern. And now, when I sit down and read this with someone, I'm hoping that they're the concerned, that, that this letter is gonna concern them. Because this letter concerns me, it's for me. And in my book, I wrote right next to it, Dear Melissa. It says, Dear Melissa right next to it. So I would suggest to you, write your name next to it. Read it like the letter was written to you. The doctor is writing you this letter. And um, so mine says my name. And I read it like these directions are specifically to me. And then it goes on and it talks about that he's gonna give this experience that he attended a patient who, though he had been a competent businessman, of good earning capacity was an alcoholic of a type I've come to regard as hopeless. Okay, so that's pretty important here because we can have good earning capacity and be both somehow competent and hopeless, right? So what does that mean? And I think it's especially true for compulsive eaters because many of us function, maybe not great, but we sort of get away with looking like we're competent in our lives. And I know for myself, um, you know, I always paid the mortgage. We never lived on the street. I never got fired. I was consistently able to keep my job. Um, my kids were generally not great, but generally their clothes were clean, right? And things were were work in working order, somewhat in the house. I could I could fake it enough. I could look competent, and yet I was hopeless. And so, if you're wondering, right? If you're wondering, is this really programmed for me? Is this a program for someone like me? and you're pointing out the things in your life that are still working, yeah, this program can very much still be for you. And what I would say is those things are, are still working. You haven't lost them yet, right? Yet is an important word because there were lots of things that I pointed at and said, see, I can still do this. See, I still have this. See, and little by little, what happens is this disease, it lowers what's acceptable. It lowers my bar for acceptability in my own life so that I don't even realize that I'm living way beneath what is truly competent, right? It's not really competent because if you clucked me up today, you know, eight and a half years in and put me back eight and a half years ago, I would not be feeling very confident, right? But, you know, I, it's like the slow boil, right? Everything that I swore I would never do, everything that seemed outside of my, you know, consideration for me, I slowly but surely approached the line and crossed it. So, um, we can be confident and hopeless. And there are some things I would say 
Um, I often share in the doctor's opinion, my message from the doctor's opinion is that this doctor's opinion tells me how I'm different from other people. It tells me that I'm, I'm a distinct entity. I'm different from normal men. And so here's the first way that I find out right here is that I can be both competent and hopeless. That's pretty different from normal people out there. That's distinct for me. Okay. Um, now the next is going to jump down and it says that um, in the course of his third treatment, he acquired certain ideas concerning a possible means of recovery. As part of his rehabilitation, he commenced to present his conceptions to other alcoholics, impressing upon them that they must do likewise with still others. Okay, so we are rehabilitated by working with others. And, you know, we're actually told here that we are to impress upon the newcomer this requirement. In one of our first conversations, like right away, we're supposed to start talking about that our entire program is based on thinking less about ourselves and more about others. And so um, what I share with people and what I share with you right now is this work that I'm doing right here and now, this is for my own rehabilitation. I'm doing this. This is part of my treatment plan. This is part of the, you know, it's the booster shot because working with others is the only immunity I have to offer, right? It's the only immunity that we get is the working with others. So when I do this, it's like, it's like going to the doctor and getting the booster for whatever it is that's, that I've got. And, and I'm also gonna tell the person like everybody right here and now that you are instructed to do the same thing. That's exactly it. It's, it's we must help others in order to get well, and stay well, we have to help others. And so we don't hide the terms, even with newcomers, even with new sponsees. The very first time I'm sitting down and I'm gonna go through meaty work together, I am going to tell that person, listen, I know you might not be well now, but you have to agree right here and now that if you get well, you will help others, right? At least consider that that will be it. Um, because, if, and if the person says, no, I have no intention of ever doing that. I, you know, I, I don't care if I ever get well, I will never, I don't wanna ever work with anybody. I will never. Um, I, I say, thank you very much. This was really nice speaking to you. I wish you all the best. The conversation ends because it cannot be a dead end, right? So if you have gone through all 12 steps and you are not actively seeking out helping another person, you are not working a 12-step program. You're working an 11-step program, right? It's like you're not taking the whole, the whole treatment. So it's an important aspect to impress upon the newcomer. Um, and I think that's interesting too, because that's another thing that makes me distinct, right? If I had another disease, 
another thing that was wrong with me. I would not necessarily have to help anybody else who had that disease in order to get well from that disease, right? Imagine for a second that you had, I don't know, some other ailment. I mean, I've been, I've been battling COVID, right? I'm having like some lingering effects of COVID. It's a bummer. Um, I trust that I will get well. I know I'm going to get well. Um, I, in order to get well from COVID, I don't have to really help anybody else specifically with COVID. That's not necessarily the instructions for that particular, you know, disease that not particularly that, that, that virus that, um, but it is for this, it is specifically for this. So this is very distinct as well. Um, now at the bottom of the page XXV, it says that, um, that we know scores of cases were of the type with whom other methods had failed completely. So this is a program for people who have exhausted every other method. And it's a good opportunity when you're going through the doctor's opinion to list all the methods, all the things that you have tried. And usually what that tells me when I'm sitting with in front of somebody and, they, and I start saying, so let's talk about the methods you've tried. What have you tried? Let me tell you what I've tried. And I start sharing what I've tried and they start telling me what they tried. One of the things that I remind them of is, so lack of desire was never your problem, was it? Because if you have exhausted every other method, you've wanted this, right? It's not lack of desire. And, um, and so when, when, when you say things like, well, maybe I just don't want it enough. That might be the case, but if you have exhausted every other method, you probably want it. You probably want it, but you haven't been shown precisely how to do it or what it is in fact. So, you know, the thing too about listing all the methods is what um, always kind of grabs my attention is um, how, although I love to embrace my intellect, I have tried some methods that are crazy, <laughs> that are not very intelligent, and I kept trying them over and over again. So when I'm going to approach any of the 12-step instructions by saying, this doesn't really make sense to me, all I need to do is remind myself that it didn't make sense to, to you know, to do the cabbage soup diet, right? It didn't make sense to eat as much bacon, that was a diet I did. You can eat as much bacon, cheese, butter, and like, you know, but no vegetables, no vegetables. That made no sense either, but boy, did I love that one. I did that one because you could have heavy cream. You <laughs> did that one because you could have whipped cream. That made no sense. So um, my intellect, you know, for someone like me, methods make it really clear that I intellect has nothing to do with any of it. Um, you know, and um, and it also makes me distinct because guess what? This program works best for people who have tried everything. That's awesome news. That's a great thing that makes me different. Okay. Now on the next page, it says the letter ends that you may rely absolutely on anything they say about themselves. And what a beautiful thing that this letter that the doctor wrote about gutter drunks, 
he wrote this letter about gutter drunks telling the folks at the hospital, hey, let them come in and let them talk to your patients here. And guess what? You can rely on anything they have to say about themselves even. And I don't know about you, but um, I know for me, um, I never told the truth about myself when I was in the grip of this disease. And so right away, this is such a powerful, I would say more impressive than the photos, right? Is the fact that today, what I tell you about me is true, right? Today that I really embrace humility and that when I, when I speak about myself and my defects or my, you know, where I go away, awry, um, it's, it's, you can rely on my word. And so um, addicts who get well, we are reliable, which means we tell the truth. We're not dishonest folks. Um, and that's pretty much, that's a huge, you know, uh, that's a huge like testimony to this program of recovery that it turns us into people who don't lie about themselves anymore. Um, okay, so now it's gonna talk about the body. And this is XXVI. And so the physician gave this letter, starts enlarging upon his views. And he's gonna tell us more and more about his views. He's gonna make them bigger and larger. And he says that the body of the alcoholic is quite as abnormal as his mind. So our bodies are abnormal. And if I don't stress this, then I am neglecting to share crucial information. And, and I'm leaving something out, right? As the sponsor or as the possible sponsor, I'm giving the newcomer incomplete information. I must tell the new person that our body, that my body is sick. And, you know, and then it, further goes on to say, you know, that, um, that if we leave this out, that uh, it's incomplete information. And then the next paragraph says that, you know, the doctor has a theory that we have an allergy and it interests us. We find it interesting. As laymen, our opinion as to its soundness may of course mean little, but as ex-problem drinkers, we can say that his explanation makes good sense. It explains many things for which we cannot otherwise account. So, and this is on XXVI. So my body's abnormal and I have to stress this. And while I'm not an allergy specialist, right? That's what it means. I'm a layman. I'm not an allergy specialist. I don't have the results of anybody's blood work. I don't have the results of mine to show you and say, hey, look, I'm allergic to this, right? What I can tell you is that it is the only explanation that makes sense to me. It's the only one. Because in my experience, even as a little girl, I have never been able to eat certain foods in moderation ever, quietly, right? So here's my example. Um, you know, I would sleep over my grandmother's house and my grandmother would always give me um, either tea or hot chocolate and two graham crackers. I cannot eat two graham crackers. 
hours. So the rest of the night, like this was, I mean, I did this everywhere, but here's like a perfect example. My grandmother would always have the two graham crackers and that was it. And the rest of the night I was tiptoeing. You know, I could walk in the dark in my house. I could walk in the dark in my grandmother's house without making a sound. And I would tiptoe back in and open up boxes, trying not to make it crinkle, right? Because I could not stop. Those just eating two was torture. And I have repeated that experiment again and again and again. And so many of the methods that I have tried were methods of moderation. Many of the diets I tried gave me the promise that they were going to re-educate me to show me how I could eat like normal people. And they told me the caloric value and they told me the points value and they told me like what it would look like to be able to have just a piece. And intellectually, it makes perfect sense. But I have an allergy. And my allergy is stronger than my intellect. It drives out everything I can say. So here's like, so think about it like an allergy. If I were allergic to strawberries, I could be as smart as I want and I won't keep myself from getting a rash, right? And if I were allergic to peanuts, I could say, well, I won't eat them in the house, but out, I'll be able to eat them and I won't get the rash, right? Or I won't eat them at all if they're roasted, right? But if they're in the ingredients of something else, I'll, I can do it, right? And so we all have different varieties, you know? of different ways that this disease shows up. But my experience is um, I have an allergy and it is much stronger than reason and intellect and my willpower. It drives out all those things. It is the most powerful physiological force in my body. And it doesn't matter how spiritually fit I am either. I can be as fit as I want I'm still allergic. That part doesn't get recovered, okay? So then it talks about what's our solution because now this is, this is important. And it says though, we work out our solution on the spiritual as well as the altruistic plane. And what does that mean? We find God by becoming unselfish, right? My spiritual development comes through unselfishness. I get a relationship with God through helping other people by putting other people's needs first. I may have a belief in God that's alone, solitary endeavor, but my connection with God must include helping other people. And that's, that's the solution here, spiritual. But it also says here, that we favor hospitalization for the alcoholic who's very jittery or befogged. And more often than not, it's imperative that a man's brain be cleared before he is approached 
as he has a better chance of understanding and accepting what we have to offer. So hospitalization for the alcoholic who's very jittery and befogged, right? And so what does that look like? Um, I talk often about this idea of a hospitalization. And some of us do need, people often do need to go into treatment facilities, right? Sometimes alcoholics um, go to rehabs and sometimes food addicts need to go into treatment, right? Um, I did not go into a formal treatment facility. I have nothing negative to say about one. You know, I can tell you from my experience that I was able to create my own hospitalization in a sense. And, um, and that's sort of what I, I, I try to help newcomers and sponsees do. So what does it look like if you're in a hospitalization, and I do these air quotes, right? This hospitalization, because I'm not telling anybody, if you're new here, I'm not telling you, telling you, you have to go to treatment, right? But what I'm telling you is you can create your own kind of pseudo hospital. What does that look like? Really tight parameters, right? Between you and the food and maybe the outside world for a bit, just long enough, right? so that you can get like clarity, your legs underneath you a little bit. And what that looks like is, um, I would tell people in early recovery, yeah, you don't go on vacation. Like it makes no sense. Think about it like you're going for chemo treatment. People in chemotherapy treatment generally aren't like, if you found out tomorrow that you needed to undergo treatment, you're probably not gonna go away because you've got some treatment to do, right? And people in early hospitalization, it's not the time to like change your job, right? Or, um, or make big life-changing decisions, you know? Um, I tell people, don't go to a restaurant when you're in the hospitalization period, if you can avoid it. Because it's like a drunk walking into a bar. Like, don't put yourself there. You know, in hospitalization period, and you're like the Girl Scout leader mom, it's not, let someone else handle the cookie order. It's not your time to be handling cookies, right? Um, I've, I've often had sponsees who can't, can't go to um, the grocery store in the beginning. It's too much. You know, they need some assistance. They need someone to sit down with them, really help them create I don't even like sometimes I've had sponsors who are like, I don't even know what to eat this week. Help me. How do I, how do I get this food thing under, you know, started? And I don't know what to make for dinner. And how am I going to mat, you know? So we sit down, we help one another. That's the hospitalization period. I've had sponsors who, you know, would order their food to be delivered because they knew that they could not go to the grocery store and handle walking up and down the aisles. I've had sponsees who have FaceTimed me the whole time in the supermarket because they had to go there, but they were afraid. They were afraid that they were gonna eat something. And so they just stayed on the, you know, we do whatever we have to do, right? With a lot of tight parameters and a great deal of support. And that's this hospitalization period. And it's not a forever period, but it's, it's so that, because I go to the supermarket, Right? We, we get well, we go to the supermarket, we rejoin the living, but 
but while we're while we're embarking in the early parts of this step work, we need a lot of tight parameters around us. You know, it further goes on to say that um, XXVII says that it's going to talk about um, that we doctors have realized for a long time that some form of moral psychology was of urgent importance to alcoholics, but its application presented difficulties beyond our conception. What with our ultra-modern standards, our scientific approach to everything, we are perhaps not well equipped to apply the powers of good that lie outside our synthetic knowledge. And so what do I get from this? Well, I may understand that I will need another moral code. And that's gonna be different from the one that I've been living with, right? And we actually find out that we get this very specific particular code. And that's also something that makes me distinct is that my code becomes love and tolerance. That's gonna to be my code, right? My code is like, what are my standard operating procedures for this person? not going to be fairness. It's not going to be justice. It's not going to be getting my way, right? Making sure that my needs are met, making sure that I'm no doormat. Mm -mm. It's going to be love and it's going to be tolerance. And, and so I understand this intellectually that I'm going to need this code, but I can't apply this with my intellect. I might understand it with my intellect, but the application of it, right? is going to require a power greater than myself. I need God basically to help me behave, right? Help me behave appropriately. And, you know, I would say it's just like I knew what healthy eating looked like. I just couldn't do it, right? Remember, I had all those methods that I had tried. And some of them, some of them were crazy, but some of them were nutritionally pretty sound and I couldn't do it, right? I can't live within the boundaries of my own knowledge. And I can't live within the boundaries of my own morals. I need God to help me live within my own morals. I need a higher power, right? In order to do this, because the addict knows right from wrong, just like the food addict knows healthy eating from non-healthy eating, right? just can't abide by right and wrong. Lack of knowledge is not my dilemma, lack of power is, it's lack of power. Okay, so next it's gonna go on and it's gonna say that this has been a privilege of being allowed to tell his story to other patients here. And with some misgiving, we consented. The cases we have followed through have been most interesting. In fact, Many of them, sorry, I lost my place. Many of them have been quite amazing, right? The unselfishness of these men as we've come to know them, the entire absence of profit motive and their community spirit is indeed inspiring to one who has labored long and wearily in this alcoholic field. They believe in themselves and still more in the power which pulls chronic alcoholics back from the gates of death. 
So this, you know, um, we do this work with one another, right? This altruistic work with one another, this unselfishness, no profit, right? Nobody's making any money. Why? Because we have a community spirit. We feel a community connection. We feel a sense of fellowship. We feel this desire to be a community together. By the way, no compulsive overeater ever recovers alone. This is not an independent study. It demands community. And we believe in a community spirit. And you know, those are the characteristics of recovered people. Altruistic and having a community spirit. And why, why are we working so hard to help others? Well, because we believe in ourselves, right? I believe in myself, but even more in the power that pulled me back from the gates of death. You know, I believe in the power. I believe in this because it saved my life. I was pulled back from the gates of death. And there's nothing melodramatic about me saying that. Like I know my own experience um, and the experiences of many others who I've, who I've had the privilege of speaking with and getting to know is we have been saved. We have been saved. You know, my experience was um, I had dangerously high blood pressure. My doctor told me that I wasn't going to make it out of my 40s if I continued on this path. I would lay in bed at night. I would snore myself awake, right? I was over 300 pounds. Um, I was having sleep apnea, so I would snore so loud that I would wake myself up. And I could hear in a resting state, I could hear my heart pounding in my ears all the time. And, um, and I was pulled back from the gates of death. And so that's why I do this, right? Because I owe a huge spread of data, a debt of gratitude, right? And I believe in it. And in my heart of hearts, I wish it, I wish this experience for everybody, right? I wish this for everybody. Um, so, you know, on the next page, it's going to talk about hospitalization again. And any of us that have read the book long enough, we know that when it's important, it gets repeated. It gets repeated again and again. And so in this one, you know, short little chapter, they talk about the hospital procedure twice because psychological measures won't work. This won't work, right? This whole plan won't work if we're continually eating as we're doing the work. It can't work, can't work like that, right? So next it's gonna talk about the phenomenon of craving. And here we are in XXV, I, 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 and it says that we believe and so suggested a few years ago that the action of alcoholic, at least chronic, Alcoholics is a manifestation of an allergy that the phenomenon of craving is limited to this class and never occurs in the average temperate drinker. These allergic types can never safely use alcohol in any form at all. So 
this paragraph is telling you that the phenomenon of craving, it's limited to this class, doesn't occur in the average temperate drinker. So that's another thing that makes me distinct is that I experience food different from other people. It's limited. What happens to me is limited, right? It's not like what happens to other people. Average temperate eaters can overeat sometimes. I think about it like the weather, temperate weather, generally mild, right? But you'll get a few fluctuations here and there. So temperate eaters overeat sometimes, but here's the thing, they don't continue to overeat once they're truly full, right? Which explains to me why I could go out to dinner with family, with friends, and I've had friends, like, I used to have this book club. And every time we had book club, my friends would be like, oh, what dessert are we going to share? And those women actually could share a dessert and leave some over. And they were not using willpower. They actually, with every bite of the cake or the dessert that they took, the desire for more got quieted, right? For me, I could never share a dessert with anybody. I really, what I wanted to do was to like stab people I loved with the fork, right? Like I want, I can't even hear them, but they really can. And it's not because they're stronger than me or better than me or have more willpower. It's that they don't experience food the same way I do, which also, you know, if you look at, people on Thanksgiving, you cannot make a determination who's a compulsive overeater on Thanksgiving, right? Because the people I know and love will all stuff themselves and they sit back from the table and they unbutton their button and they go, oh my gosh, I ate so much. They did, they ate so much, but here's how I can tell the difference because the phenomenon of craving is limited to me right? Not my family. When I've done that, I don't care how full I am. That whole night I'm continuing, right? And so you can't tell who the compulsive overeater is on Thanksgiving, but watch and notice on Friday, right? The Friday after. Who's still eating in the morning? Who's still eating all weekend through? That's me, right? That's me because I I can't control that. That's the allergy. That's what happens to me. You know, normal people receive satisfaction from normal size portions. Normal people eat, they get full and they lose interest. I eat, I get full and my interest is heightened. I'm more interested, right? And I tell myself things like, well, I blew it anyway. I may as well go all out as if I'm choosing to go all out, right? And our disease actually is so cunning because it makes you believe that you chose that, right? It makes you think that somehow you're just choosing to just finish the weekend off. You're not choosing it. You're not choosing it. Not if you have what I have. Because once I trigger the allergy, 
I cannot dial it back. And so cravings for people who don't have this, normal people crave it before they eat it. They eat it, the craving goes away. But for the compulsive overeater, I obsess on it. I call it a craving, but that's not a meat craving. That's an obsession. I obsess on it, I eat it, and then the craving starts for me, which is distinct. That's a different experience than normal people. You know, and I'm laughing because I actually went to take something out of the closet today. And my family, I don't have, they, they don't have this. They don't have it because there's a box of cookies. I can't believe there's cookies left in it. I bought that box weeks ago. Who leaves cookies? And they like those cookies, but they forgot about them, right? They forgot about them, you know? And so um, this kind of response only occurs when I eat very specific foods. And it also occurs when I eat in very specific ways. I wanna talk about that because that's the alcoholic food behavior. For me, I think it's really useful for a sponsor and sponsee to sit down together to try to determine what foods and what behaviors do this. You know, I'll just share my experience is that um, one way that helps me is that I look at the portion size because I've had someone say, I don't know if this food is a problem. I really don't. And, and, and it's a food, and this particular food, you know, is something I can eat, right? And somebody asked me, they said, I don't know if this is a problem. And so um, I said, well, if we're honest and we're really working this and you're not sure, here's what I'd like you to do. Measure it out. Here's the portion. Measure it. Don't eat it yet. Look at it. What do you think? What do you think? If your first response is no way, there is no way that that's a portion. There's no way that I can eat it. It's probably a problem for you and best to leave it out, right? That's one way. You know, for me, um, another, another thing that sort of, um, that helps me is I have, I have some alcoholic food behaviors, which my craving will get sparked from this type of behavior. And for me, it's spontaneous eating. It's eating in unplanned ways, right? For me, even, even foods that should be innocuous, even foods, you know, even like raw vegetables, which I don't have a problem with. For me, I cannot just eat them without having a plan, right? I can't, so when, you, when I hear people say, well, I overate, but it wasn't on my alcoholic food, I actually don't really understand that because I am a compulsive overeater. And so it's the action, not just the action of a food that triggers the allergy, but it's the action of an alcoholic behavior that triggers my allergy that triggers my allergy. So I cannot eat in ways that are outside of a committed food thing. That's my experience. I'm, you know, I often share, 
I'm going to be 54 years old. I have to write my food down every morning and report it to another adult. And if I so much as think I need to make a change, sometimes things come up, I have to actually report it immediately. And it's not because my sponsor is controlling and mean, you know, and, and, is, and is crazy, but it's because I am crazy and I am out of control and I require it and I accept it. I don't fight it. I'm not interested in fighting it because I've had enough experience. I've gathered enough data to know that when I have eaten in ways that are spontaneous, what I've just done is I've succumbed to the desire and I set off a craving. And once I set off a craving, all bets are off, right? I can't, I, I can't control it. So I know we really, really didn't get um, very far, but that's okay because we're gonna continue it Again, I think it's a super important, you know, chapter. Um, so I'm going to put a, a kind of bookmark in. And the next time when we speak, we will talk about fraught the emotional appeal. So with that, I'm going to stop.